As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Easter weekend, a time for eggs, G, and big, big stories. Like West Brom's afternoon of shocks at Stamford Bridge. A keeper getting an assist, a Republic of Ireland player getting goals. At the Emirates, a clash of top half and bottom half, and that was just Stuart Atwell's haircut. Plus, Man City with stones removed and Jesus making his return, which feels topical. We'll be talking about all of that, plus this week's Champions League clashes, and we'll get the latest drama from the Inter-Totally Cup with another big name set to fall. It's all coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, listener. Thank you so much for joining us on what may well be for you April the 5th, 2021, Easter Monday. Hope you've been having a good weekend. I know I have. Uh, It's Sunday night for me and I'm joined by Rory Smith. Hello, Rory. Hello, James. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Tom Williams is also on board. Hi, Tom. Hi, James. As is Sunday night stalwart Daniel Storey. Hi, James. Yes. Well, there was plenty to enjoy this weekend. Chocolate and the Premier League coming back with a bang. Woof. I'm just saying woof because there were so many words. Do they do it justice? I don't know. Sounds, that's what I'm going with. A game like West Brom, what they did to, to Chelsea. Could you could you try and express that result in a sound, James? Well, no, that's the thing. It's the kind of game <laughs> you that... You can't, you can't. There is, uh, there is not a sound that exists that would do justice to, to that result. Not only that, but it totally invalidates kind of our entire position as pundits. It's one of those games that comes along and renders everything... It renders it starkly obvious that, in the words of William Goldman, nobody knows anything. Are you suggesting that at some point, punditry will have evolved to a stage where we can sum up entire games with a single guttural noise and, uh, and that'll be the end of this sort of caper? Let's hope not, Tom. <laughs> Let's hope you can't not. sum it up with a sound, but you can sum it up with a single image, which was Sam Allardyce's celebration of the fourth goal. Third or fourth goal? The hoof upfield with the assist for Sam Johnston. It was the one that ended with Callum Robinson producing a kind of Van Basten-esque finish. Oh, yeah. But Allardyce celebrating after that was was quite a sight. Mm. Just really uplifting. It just felt like kind of one of those those moments of pure football where, you know, one of the good guys gets, gets what they've always wanted. Mm. 
Well, not everybody got what they wanted this weekend, that's for sure. Let's have a quick check on the results before we get stuck in to the football that happened. Man City sail past Leicester at the King Power, Saturday tea time. Neighbours United did their usual come-from-behind act, uh, this time at home to Brighton Sunday night. Uh, meanwhile, as mentioned, West Brom with the shock 5-2 victory at Chelsea, which moves the baggies to within eight points, tantalisingly, of safety and leaves the Blues in real danger of losing their top four place. West Ham could move past them into the Champions League positions Monday night against Wolves, while Spurs, who drew 2-2 at Newcastle, and Liverpool, who won 3-0 at Arsenal, are just two points off Chelsea themselves. Crikey. Uh, where do you want to start this week? Do you want to start with the one that's just finished on Sunday night as we record this, which is the Man United come-from-behind 2-1 win against Brighton, or with the shocking events at Stamford Bridge? Daniel. Maybe with the the Brighton Manchester yes. United game and that it's fresh in our minds. Um, Tell us. Yeah, I mean Graham Potter said a few weeks ago, you know, he kind of reinforced how hard his job was, and he said it's it's a nominally high percentage about money, and my job is to kind of try and manage the rest. And it kind of felt like that because he managed the rest absolutely brilliantly, and Mike Brighton managed the rest brilliantly for the first fifty minutes, and then they. Just looked like they lost concentration a bit. They started passing it around like there was five minutes to go, and they just sort of knocked one long rather than actually looking for those triangles they were doing in the first half. And United sort of sucker punched them a couple of times. And yeah, I mean, it's a game that quite often when you praise managers in defeat like Graham Potter, particularly because they play very pretty football, you kind of get that response of, well, you know, he's not really winning games, is he? And you look at a game like that and you think there's not really much more he can do. I don't think. Well, he might have been helped if Mike Dean had deigned to uh, walk over to the sideline monitor and, and, and check on that Harry Maguire uh, challenge in the box, which certainly looked to these untutored eyes like it should have been a Brighton penalty. Impossible record. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you, James, to be honest. I, I thought it was a penalty. I thought it, it there wasn't a vast amount of contact, but it was enough contact, I thought, to, to knock Welbeck off balance. It, it seemed a fairly obvious case of the little thing that Harry Maguire did prevented Danny Welbeck reaching the ball and presumably scoring. And I'm generally easier on referees and even on, on referees sitting in booths than most journalists and pundits, I think. But I don't quite understand why it wasn't deemed worthy, at least of, as you say, Dean going across the monitor. I'm also a bit surprised by the lack of controversy, for want of a better word. Not that we should ever stoke controversy, but... Th- I don't quite get why we all, why there wasn't a kind of outpouring of that's a really bizarre decision from what I could see on on social media, which is not normally shy and it's not normally backwards and coming forwards on, on outrage. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know whether a little bit of that is that no one really knows what a penalty is anymore, and there's there's now enough kind of doubt. So I was trying to thinking that, you know, you get those penalties where it's it's really slender contact when feet come together. There's like a really a sort of really mild contact two players running and like one's knee sort of gently caresses another's knee and the player falls over because mm-hmm. when you're running fast you fall over um, and everyone says that's a definite penalty but with arms when 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 a defender kind of gently caresses another player's shoulder we all say well there's not enough there and it just seems that there's now so many grey areas in penalties that I think we don't know when to be outraged right. so we're kind of outraged all of the time I'm here for talk of gentle caressing but Tom you've got a point to make <laughs> 
Yeah, it felt like one of those umpires call VAR decisions in that I think if Mike Dean had awarded a penalty, I don't think it would have been overturned. It's one of those quite unsatisfying ones where there was obviously contact. It wasn't contact that absolutely leapt out at you, but as soon as you'd seen one replay, you could see the contact. But I think, you know, it, it probably would have taken a little bit more for that to be awarded as a, as a penalty. Perhaps, uh, you know, that that was the root of the, the lack of controversy. Although, as we speak, who knows what sort of controversy is, is exploding across the, you know, the, the football landscape. What, what about United, though? They did get the two goals. They did come from behind as per, and they did uh, maintain their status there just behind, well, a significant distance behind Man City, but in, in second place. Uh, should they be content with that? Are there concerns for them beyond the fact that apparently Anthony Martial is going to be out for the rest of the season? Yeah, it was, I mean... It sounds incredibly churlish, and I'm sure, as Rory has said about social media, people will be quick to judge it that way. But they do kind of feel like the sort of de facto second place team in that they haven't had a, a crisis, they haven't had a, a calamity, they haven't sacked a manager, uh, they haven't had a you know a, a spate of injuries to key players, uh, and that seems to have been enough. You know, they have a, this brilliant or very long unbeaten away run, which is not to be sniffed at, and they are very good at coming from behind, having conceded first generally pretty early on. But, I mean, it was, it was such a nothing performance, really. It was, it was a, a real post-international break performance in that everyone seemed to be looking at each other like they hadn't been training together for the last two weeks. But it's just no one really there to... I almost thought they missed the, the, the kind of industry and organisation of McTominay just to kind of shout at a few people and tell people to sort of buck their ideas up because... They just really coasted through that first half. And, and yeah, as you say, they, they exploited the couple of mistakes Brighton made and won the game. But I think that's more a sign of their strength in depth and ability than, you know, glorious, seamless performance. Hmm. I think you have to you have to praise them for their character. You, you have to... There is now... It's, it, it's, it happens often. It seems to happen once every two, two or three weeks that United go behind and come back to, to get a result. And that... that in most circumstances, and in this one, is testament to the the sort of resolve of the team and the the perseverance, all that stuff, all those things, those intangibles that are really important. Um, I think you have to admire you have to admire Rashford's finish for the first, which was which was beautifully taken, artfully done, and he hit it with a slightly different part of his foot to how you thought he hit it, which was quite interesting. Um, Daniel's totally right; it was Brighton. They pounced on the two mistakes. And that, and it's not to take anything away from United, but there is an element of they have finished second, or they are going to finish second because everybody else at some point has blown up for longer than they have, and their resources are greater than pretty much everybody else's, at least in depth, not necessarily in quality. Um, and I think you have to give credit. I was really amused on on Twitter when Yana de Fiorto, Yana got a real bee in his bonnet about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer being referred to as a PE teacher, which is not a charge I've ever heard laid at Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. I don't really know where that comes from. It's like one person said it, and it's really got under, under Yana de Fiorto's skin. I think with, with with Solskjaer, the credit is that he's built a structure which allows the most effective effective part of his team to function, and that is to an extent a manager's job. But the question for Man United has to be. Is that enough for them with with that advantage in resources, with the, the club's history, with their ambition? And finishing second is like a tick in Solskjaer's box, but I don't know if it's necessarily a sort of conclusive proof. At the end of the season, if United finish second, which I think they will do, and looks fairly, fairly apparent now, do Man United fans believe that next season they'll do better than that? 
That, I think, is the crucial question. All right. Well, we'll stand by for an answer on that. Of course, they do still have the Europa League yeah, a competition in which they'll be uh, facing Granada this this coming Thursday. But fans of West Brom are sitting there going, fine. That's what happened at Old Trafford Sunday night. But let's get on to the slice of history. Saturday lunchtime, as the Baggies went to Stamford Bridge and did Chelsea 5-2. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Here's Podcast Pereira. Network. Pereira slides it through. Robinson flag stays down. Callum oh, what a finish. it over the top. What it's a finish. For West Bromwich Albion, it's two for Robinson. <laughs> what a finish. Incredible <laughs> afternoon of football here. Oh, mate, what a weekend we're going to have now. Saturday lunchtime, the game no one saw coming. But a classic case of Curse of the Manager of the Month award this. Tuchel had just picked it up. Hadn't been beaten as Chelsea boss. Side weren't conceding, thank you very much. West Brom, who'd only scored two in seven games, turn up and do them for five. Extraordinary. Biggest shock of the season, would you say, Daniel? Uh, I think Sheffield United winning at Old Trafford was was bigger. Really? Um, Yeah, I think so. Um, but back then, Man United were doing that kind of thing. Chelsea, yeah, just but Sheffield weren't. United weren't. Sheffield United weren't more than West Brom. More than West Brom weren't. Um, Villa, yeah, I mean, Liverpool too. Villa, was a bigger yeah. shock than both Villa's of those. Shock, yeah, really. Yeah. But then it turned out that Liverpool, you know, yeah, but we didn't know that then. We didn't know right. how good Villa were either. And that was pre-injuries as well. Villa, Villa, Villa scoring seven against the reigning champions in the fourth yeah. game of the season. I, I would say still, still goes top. But West Brom, Rory. Yeah, Their West first Brom. win at Stamford Bridge since 1978. <laughs> Chelsea's joint worst ever home defeat. And it does feel that you can maybe sum this up in a in a sound, which is just repeating the phrase West Brom in a variety <laughs> of like exasperated tones again and again. <laughs> let's we- let's try and do Brom. more than that, though. Uh, how did West it happen? West Brom. Uh, I think, well, it's, too, it's first of all, West Brom kind of, West Brom turned into... Um, Turned into like 1970s Brazil and scored like what at least one brilliant team goal, right? Which kind of came out of nowhere. Th- that style of play, and I think you, again you have to give credit to them. For, they, they've always been capable. Of that. I saw them really early in the season at Goodison, and they lost. They conceded five, I think, and maybe lost five two. But in the first half, they were really good until Kieran Gibbs got himself stupidly sent off, and. You could tell then that Robinson and Pereira in particular and Grady Diangana had a had an understanding and they were capable of going forward and looking good going forward. This was under Slavin Bilic. And they fell apart after the, the red card. So they've always kind of had that in the locker. They've got they've got some talented attacking players. But there has been no sign of, of this performance coming. But the flip side of that is is there's a real question mark over Chelsea collapsing even with the red card. That is a bizarre level of collapse against a team that is 19th in the Premier League table and is going most likely to be relegated for a team that, what, two weeks ago you were kind of thinking, do you know what, they could be dark horses for the Champions League. To to collapse like that is astonishing after three months in which they basically not conceded a chance, let alone a goal under Thomas Tuchel. It's really, it was really strange. I think you have to credit Big Sam as well for realising that Chelsea were there for the taking. If you look at the sequence of events, sort of midway through the first half, uh, he loses Dara O'Shea to injury, sends on Ivanovic, then Chelsea go ahead through Pulisic, then Thiago Silva gets sent off, uh, and then when uh, Ivanovic pulls up injured, he realises that with that man advantage, you know, perhaps there's there's more to be had here than simply just hitting back from behind. Uh, so he sends on Callum Robinson in his place, switches to a back four, 
And then they played it beautifully from there. Um, you know, really went for it on the counter-attack. Mateus Pereira, two fantastic goals. Callum Robinson full of running. Um, and yeah, really deserved it. I mean, it's it's probably too late for this to be the result that sparks West Brom's um, improbable dash uh, to safety. But at the very least, it will give their supporters something to to look back on and, and, and smile at from, from what's been a pretty unpleasant campaign in many ways. Well, here's Big Sam speaking afterwards. People cannot say Chelsea were under par. I mean, they can, but, you know, his point they is... They can, Sam, and they will. But please proceed. They, they were off form, continues, uh, Big Sam, because we were so good. We need five wins out of the last eight to give ourselves a chance. Still, that might not be enough. Let's start against Southampton. Well, indeed. The thing about picking up on what Tom said, they had chances before the red card and they had chances that were earned to some extent, but also at least partly given to them by Chelsea, which suggests that there was, and I don't want to criticise or contradict Allardyce, it does suggest there was something wrong with Chelsea even before Thiago Silva got sent off, that they didn't, they looked jaded and out of rhythm and slightly jarring. And I, I do wonder whether part of that might be that they had more players coming back from internationals than West Brom did, mm. that they maybe didn't have... They made a few changes as well, we should say. They, they started, obviously, Thiago Silva and Zuma. That when those two have started together for Chelsea, Chelsea lost five of the last six, which is probably the last time we might see that combination this season. And they obviously rested Kante as well. And Jorginho was dreadful first half and was obviously hooked at the break. Um, I was going to say, it, it, it kind of might make a bigger difference for, for Allardyce as well, because he said in the week about kind of classic Allardyce. I'm not going to stay at West Brom to mess about in the championship. You know, I'll I'll stay if I think the club are going to get promoted, which is a, a lovely way of um, kind of keeping his powder dry. For, but he's he's probably right. If, if they can keep hold of Pereira, Robinson, Diagne is only on loan, so I suspect they probably won't make that permanent if they go down. But they really could have a shot next season if you look at what Norwich have done this season. So it might make a difference to him staying or not. Ryan Clayton says, would the panel rate Mateus Pereira as the best player in the bottom three? And could he really shine in a more fluid team, given West Brom's weekend performance? Question mark. Yeah, maybe Adam Ola-Luckman, mm. I think, is is probably up there. Mm. Um, Twilight Sanderberg, Sheffield United. It's hard yeah. with Sheffield United, they've lost so many games, but there's a couple that... And O'Connell as well. Yeah, I mean, Pereira being He's the certainly in the conversation, isn't he? Mm. Well... A wildly different West Brom then, as you say, some lovely Samba football, some lovely big Sam football as well, because I, I really enjoyed him doing Tuchel with a classic bit of British Route 1, you know, welcome to the tactics. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, worryingly for Chelsea as they come off this defeat and head towards their Champions League clash with Porto, reports today of training ground bust-ups. And apparently Aspilicueta and Rhys James having what's described as a frank exchange, which is actually coincidentally what Chelsea did with their managers what uh, <laughs> two months ago. Uh, yeah, so that I don't know if that's in any way ties in with their... I tend to be quite sceptical when it comes to reports of training ground bust-ups. I always remember a quote from Ryan Giggs who said that they had bust-ups in training every single day of his entire tenure as a Man United player because players are flying into challenges and they're sort of up for it. And you, you tend to hear about these incidents when clubs are coming off the back of a bad result or, or things are going badly, um, which is not to say that, you know, it, nothing's happened. There obviously has been some sort of uh, some sort of altercation. But yeah, 
always wary about reading too much into things like this. All right, then. So Chelsea, anyway, remained fourth in the Premier League, but now they have only two points of advantage over Spurs, Liverpool and West Ham. West Ham, who, of course, have a game in hand, which they're going to be playing Monday night away at Wolves. Everton, who are three points further back, have two games in hand, so they're not out of this conversation either. Uh, Rory, you, you've just done a large piece about the run-in, mm. about the race for top four. Who, who do you think, you know, given the knowledge that you now have of everybody's fixture list, who do you think is best placed to take that fourth spot behind City, United and Leicester? I've been doing this job for far too long to like, make a prediction. That, that, is, that is a fool's errand. I did do the fixture list. I loved, I loved going through fixture list. It right. makes me really happy. And actually um, contributed to the fact this was the first weekend of football I've looked forward to in about three months. I was really excited about it. Um, before the weekend, I thought it would probably be United, Chelsea, Leicester behind City. Not quite sure which order, third and fourth. But I thought it might be tighter than people think. I think Leicester's run-in particularly the last three games or three of the last four games of Chelsea, three of Spurs and United. the four against, yeah, United, Spurs and Chelsea. And that, I think that, given what happened last season with Leicester and given that I still think they have a slight inferiority complex, a tendency to be a little bit callow against the established, in inverted commas, I'm doing the air quotes, uh, top six teams, I think if they go into that run of games not mathematically secure of finishing the top four, you wonder whether their nerve might betray them. They have a seven-point margin over uh, that cluster of teams just outside the top four. That might change, of course, with what happens with uh, West Ham on, on Monday night. And that might be enough. But I think I th- so in terms of the run-ins, Liverpool's now is probably the, the kindest. Mm. Although Liverpool's form over the last three months means that may well be irrelevant. Tottenham, I think, will really regret not beating Newcastle that would have kind of changed the, the complexion of the battle. That is the first time it, since Tuttle took over, basically, that I've, I've started to think that Chelsea wouldn't make it. As soon as he was appointed, I thought that that would be them in the top four because he just seemed to sol- solve so many of their problems so quickly just by help getting them to train with like miniature balls. That seemed to be all that was missing. That was the one thing Lampard wasn't doing. And Tuttle spotted it straight away, went in and thought, you, you lads need miniature balls. Let's, let's do that and crack on. Um, now I think it's, it's too close to call, James. That's my conclusion. I see. Well, you mentioned Liverpool and their recent inability to put together a string of results, but reports from the Emirates on Saturday night suggest that Liverpool are now back. They're three weeks off, have restored them to something like their all-conquering prowess of their title-winning season. Let's talk about Liverpool's three, Arsenal nil next. Four. Four. Four, ten. The Masters at Augusta, and Paddy Power are paying even more places than usual, so you get money on your each-way bet if your golfer finishes in the top ten places. That's right, the top ten. Paddy Power. Online exclusive. Pre-tournament each-way bets on winner market at one-fifth odds. Dead heat rules and T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. Shh, you too. Oh, sorry. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Arsenal nil, Liverpool 3 to give it its correct title Saturday night in North London. Liverpool's biggest ever top flight win away at the Gunners. Brilliant for Klopp's side, disastrous for Arsenal. Was there a single aspect of this game that Liverpool didn't dominate? No, not at all. It was um, it was kind of embarrassing, actually. I mean, Arsenal were pretty fortunate to to have only ceded a three-goal margin. I thought that in most games that Arteta has struggled in, and, and Arsenal have been incredibly infuriating, they've not won, I looked earlier, and they've not won more than three Premier League games in a row for, since I think, October 2018, which just kind of sums up where they're at. But most times when they infuriate you, it's because they're trying to do what they've been told to do and getting it wrong. Whereas this time, it, it didn't even look like... It was hard to tell what they were trying to do. They sort of started by trying to pass out from the back and got that a bit wrong. They basically didn't play a move through central midfield successfully for about the first 25 minutes. And uh, yeah, these are the times when you kind of worry about them because um, the biggest compliment, the only compliment you could give to Arsenal is that is Bakaya Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe weren't playing. And they're the two players who look to give them the most energy and they are the kind of young future of the club. But... The flip side to that is that the players who did start are incredibly expensive, cost a lot of money to buy and are seriously underperforming. Mm. That said, it wasn't until uh, Diogo Jota came on that Liverpool actually opened up the scoring. Uh, Jurgen Klopp responding to the deadlock by taking off Andy Robertson and sending on the uh, inform Portuguese player who's now got 18 goals for club and country in a season which he's missed three months of due to injuries. Pretty impressive stuff. Jota obviously looking fabulous. The uh, wonderful cross from Trent Alexander-Arnold for the opening goal was pretty special as well. Who else caught your eye? Fabinho? Any others? Yeah, I mean, I think Fabinho, uh, Fabinho's issue this season is that Liverpool compounded the loss of Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez and all their other senior centre-backs by moving Fabinho back to fill in, which meant that not only did they lose their two uh, most important defenders, they also lost arguably their most important midfielder, and probably the best holding midfielder in the country. Um, so him now being back in midfield uh, gives them much more of a platform uh, in the middle of the pitch. And I think it's, it's no coincidence that, uh, you know, it was with him playing there that they produced such a you know, such an excellent performance. But just to just to go back to Jota briefly, I think his absence um, has been, I mean, it hasn't been as, as big a factor as the absences of, of Van Dijk and, and Joe Gomez, but I think it has been overlooked uh, in terms of its importance because, you know, the business that Liverpool did last summer was really good business. I mean, on paper, at least, I mean, Thiago Alcantara is still finding his feet, clearly. Um, but I thought Jota was a, was a fabulous signing because... It wasn't just a case of bringing in a decent backup player. It was bringing in someone who was good enough to compete for a starting position and versatile enough to play in any of the the, the forward three positions. And not only was he keeping the other Liverpool forwards on their toes, but he was he was being really effective. I mean, his scoring record since he came to Liverpool, albeit he hasn't played all that much, has been phenomenal. And so when they lost him to injury, they lost a lot of the, the dynamic that he'd brought. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's great news for Liverpool that, that he's now back in the team, that he's now scoring goals again, particularly as, as Rory said earlier, they've, they've got a, you know, a lot of very winnable games between now and the end of the season. Um, and I would have thought that we'll, we'll be seeing a lot of Jota because he's, you know, he's, he gives them something that I don't think those other three forwards do. Miguel Delaney wrote a piece for The Independent today saying that 
and I think this, this is the key thing with Jota, that his directness is what lends him that X factor, is that I think that for all that Mane, Salah and Firmino are clearly, you know, the last few years have been one of the best striked tridents in Europe, and that when they're on form, they are hard to stop. I think teams know what they're trying to do. They they will study the level of detail they'll go into on, on their, their movement, their patterns of play, means that teams are at least forewarned. It doesn't always ha- it doesn't always help, but they, they kind of know what's coming. I think Jota is is less refined than all three, but he's so direct. It it, it is as though his his first thought upon getting the ball is the goal's over there, I'll I'll just go that way. And I think that that lends a real kind of Almost like a little bit of chaos to Liverpool's attack. But the other player that I'd, I'd maybe highlight is Ozan Kabak, who, when he came in, it's not, I mean, it was a bit of a hospital pass to, to be the central defender that Liverpool signed. And I, I remember I was at the Merseyside derby in either late February or early March. And for the first 20 minutes, he really struggled with the wind. And so did Luca Dean and, um, and Abdullah Decore. And Dean, I think, basically didn't, didn't correctly judge a header for 90 minutes. Because it was one of those really weird, blustery wins. Dottore struggled for the first half, then seemed to sort it out, work out how to play in those conditions. Kabak struggled for the first 20 minutes, and it set the tone for the entire game. It was his misreading of the long ball that eventually led to the first goal. There was a couple of others, and you could tell there was this kind of, even in the press box, in an empty stadium, there was this kind of nervousness whenever the ball went anywhere near Kabak. And I don't know anything about football, but even I thought, oh, hang on, he's not the only one on the pitch who's struggling with the wind. It's very clearly the wind doing this. And actually everything else he's done has been fine. But in the last two or three games, either side of the, the international break, he's looked both solid and really poised. And I think that's quite important. He looks like a much better player than he's been given credit for. All right, but check the weather forecast before... Yeah, maybe before. not when it's windy, yeah. Right. So by and large, I mean, with him reaching some form and uh, Jogo Jota return from injury. Uh, Liverpool, I'm saying, are back. Uh, they do seem to be. I guess we'll get further indications Tuesday when they take on Real Madrid in Madrid in a kind of Godzilla v Kong of, of the Champions League. Two. The one the one note of caution I would sound uh, regarding Liverpool being back or not is that we thought they were back after they won away at Spurs and West Ham mm. in the same week at the end of January. And they then lost against Brighton, Man City, Leicester, Everton, Chelsea and Fulham. Uh, and have, have since then beaten Wolves and Arsenal. So, I mean, they, you know, it was, a, it was a very vibrant performance. And I think the fact that Fabinho is now back in midfield, that Jota's now back, that these are all good omens. But Liverpool are having such a weird season. I would, you know, I'd be inclined to sort of hold back before declaring that they are emphatically back. OK. All right, then. They have been very, very good on their travels of late, winning seven of their last eight on the road, and they're unbeaten in all their away games in the Champions League this season. Of course, this is going to be an especially tough one because Real Madrid have hit a bit of form. Uh, They've won nine of their last 11 in all competitions. They've got a win against Eibar at at the weekend. We'll talk about it and, indeed, all the European fixtures in Tuesday's Totally Football Show with the uh, Euro boys. Quick word, though, on Arsenal. Daniel, I don't know if you've got a... One of your special size as we introduce <laughs> the topic of Arteta and, uh, and... Less about my special size, thanks very much. Right, Steve. sorry, yeah. <laughs> he, he said he was in shock and has called on his players to show big balls, not the little ones that Thomas Tuchel yeah, had. That's his first mistake, yeah. Right. But <laughs> this was Arsenal's worst performance under him, was it? And how much was it him getting things very badly wrong? I don't know if it was their worst performance, but the, the fact that the... 
that conversation is being repeated, inevitably you get a kind of um, a gradual erosion of your faith in what's going on, which I haven't lost yet. And and clearly the Europa League is now more important than the Premier League to them for obvious reasons. It's their it's their only route into the Champions League. But I did think he get got it wrong. But then he he didn't really have an awful lot of choice and. He's got a Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang problem. That's that's absolutely abundantly clear in that Aubameyang on the left kind of works in the 3-4-3 when he can stay really high up the pitch, I think. But in this 4-2-3-1, he was kind of playing as an auxiliary left-back for most of the game as Liverpool penned them back. And I mean, it just looked to sap away the the energy and the, the fun out of Aubameyang. And that's becoming a serious issue because for some reason, Arsenal looked at the clanging siren um, of Meza Ozil and just as they were finally sorting out that problem or at least cutting their losses on it they seem to have dived straight back into potentially a similar problem and you know Aubameyang is, is 31 he's being paid £375,000 a week which is a lot even in footballer terms but it's certainly a lot to Arsenal because um, you know it's a sl- pretty farcical to have one of the highest played players in the country on the left and the fourth most expensive player in British football history on the right in Nicola Pepe. And neither of them really feel like you can believe that that's what they are at the moment. And they're not Arsenal's only problem and they're not Arteta's only problem, but they are they are a, a handy personification of the problems, I think. The scale of that job is remarkable at Arsenal, given that it's, what, four years since they were still in the Premier, in the Champions League. They've been in the Champions League every season for 20 years. And you look, you look through the squad now, and there is there's there's hope in the in the young players, but there's loads of players who are, who are either too old or paid too much that they're going to be hard to shift this summer, especially because there's no money anywhere. No one's going to be thinking, do you know what? We can take a 31 year old striker who's on 375 grand a week. There's no there there are no clubs there out there who can do that. Um, and you know, you think about Callum Chambers, who seems to have been written off by three or four different kind of or three, three different Arsenal managers, and is still now starting at right-back, which isn't even really his position. It's credit to him that he's, he's stuck with it and you know, still, still there. But I, I don't even know where you start with Arsenal, really. They are, the scale of that job is, is really kind of startling and quite worrying because it shouldn't... I thought that wasn't meant to happen anymore. I thought teams couldn't drop out of the elite like that, whereas they are now a, a mid-table team. That's just what they look like. When in the North London derby a few weeks ago, I think there were eight of the twenty highest paid players in Britain on the pitch for Arsenal and Tottenham. Which is when you think about their lead positions, that that does not indicate clubs that are being run very well. Indeed. All right. Well, the jury is still somewhat out then on, on Arteta, but uh, quite a hefty bit of evidence, perhaps. Or as you say, a Europa League now the priority for the Gunners, and indeed they'll be in action this Thursday against Slavia Prague in that competition. All right, uh, Tuesday also sees Man City in action in Europe. They'll be hosting Dortmund. Dortmund, who lost their big clash this weekend with surprise Bundesliga side Eintracht Frankfurt and thus slipping further back in the race for top four spots in the uh, top flight in Germany. So that, that's an interesting game, isn't it? Dortmund at the Etihad. Haaland playing at the Etihad. Not, not, not much of an angle there, is there, Tom? No, yeah, I wonder what the uh, what our, our famously uh, reserved tabloid newspapers will do uh, with the build up to that game. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it will be portrayed as a as 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 Haaland's opportunity to audition for the role of Sergio Aguero's replacement, and Guardiola I thought, has. I thought Benjamin Mendy had that. Well, Benjamin, I mean, if he keeps on sticking goals away the way he did against Leicester, 
took that beautifully. I think it's the first time I've ever seen him use his right foot as well. Um, so, yeah, fantastic goal. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Pep Guardiola has inevitably uh, played down uh, these links between City and, and Haaland. And, and to be honest, if there's, if there's one team in European football who've shown that it's capable to win matches without a centre-forward this season, it's Manchester City. That's been the, the, you know, the, the genius of, of Guardiola's achievement over the last few months, has been finding a way to win games without uh, a recognised centre-forward. And consequently, when he decides to rest players, as he did at Leicester... And when he decides to leave out all his most important players, it's the strikers who come into the team, Aguero and, and Gabriel Jesus starting um, starting up top together. Um, and and yeah, just you know, further evidence of, of City's extraordinary strength in depth and consistency that despite the fact they left out uh, João Cancelo and John Stones and Ilkay Gundogan and Phil Foden and Raheem Sterling, they're still able to beat a very decent Leicester team without really having to move out of third gear. No, absolutely. They restricted them to just two shots on target in the entire game. Leicester side, who of course had won 5-2 at the Etihad back in September. Leicester didn't have any shots on or off target in the first half of this game. And there was that famous spell in the first half in which Man City had 100% possession and Leicester zero percent possession as dominant as Liverpool were at the Emirates were were City even more so in this game at Leicester yes I think they probably were and and as Tom says it's the the third gear nature of everything that seems so daunting I feel like I say this every time I'm on the show or therefore every Sunday but it's very easy to forget that they were eighth at the turn of the year albeit with a game in hand but just the normalization of of how quickly they have become this kind of immovable object and won 23 of the last 24 matches in all competitions is astonishing, really. And yeah, as Tom says again, the players they left out, four or five of those will start against Dortmund in midweek. And if nothing else, it provides every opposition manager with a completely, you know, almost a blank sheet on which to foresee how City are going to play. Because, for example... Um, Kevin De Bruyne has played in four different positions this season. Okay, Gundogan's played at least two roles, probably three. Cancelo can, wherever he's put on the team sheet, offers no indication of what role he's going to play. So, yeah, it's impossible to manage against. Mm. Imagine, imagine Holland though running onto through balls from Kevin De Bruyne like the one. I, I, he I kind in. of feel like City. If City have a weakness, particularly in the Champions League, it's against these kind of free form, flowing attacks. Uh, where you're not quite sure who's going to pop up where. I think Leon and, and Monaco are both good examples of that. I'm not sure. I think Guardiola is probably happier having a a, a true centre forward to defend against, probably than and and it sounds like Jaden Sancho is going to be out. So I kind of think they'll be okay. You no, know, I was I was thinking beyond that. I was imagining Kevin De Bruyne putting balls through like that exquisite oh. pass he did for an Erling Haaland mm. for Man City. Mm. That is officially daunting for the league. It, yeah. It is really daunting and I think it, it would be fascinating to see whether a, like a, a potentially kind of transformative number nine like Haaland, not that Aguero wasn't, but you know, a player of that kind of calibre and youth and all that stuff, whether they take City onto the next level. But it would it would present Guardiola with a bit of a tactical conundrum because generally he doesn't like players, forward players, who who aren't kind of fluid in where they play. Because if you think about it, I mean, Zlatan is the, is the prime example wasn't 100% sold on what to do with Zlatan because Zlatan was just like, well, I, I stand here and then the ball kind of arrives and I straw. And Haaland, I don't think, has Zlatan's ego. I'm not sure anybody does. But 
you you can't imagine him saying to Erling Haaland like what's going to happen here Erling is you're going to drop deep and then João Cancelo is going to come through from right back and take your and take your striking role I, and it would involve a little bit of a change to the kind of Guardiola pattern I think which in itself would be interesting obviously I'm sure Guardiola would be able to sort it out and they'd you know they'd they'd score 353 goals or something in the season and, and get 114 points but it would involve a little bit of a shift in what City do hmm be interesting to see it happen though. Uh, now, uh, we will at least get to see what we should do, depending on selections. We should see them going head-to-head. Holland, of course, with the extraordinary numbers this season, particularly in the Champions League, where he is the top scorer with 10 goals in, I think, just six appearances. So, yeah. OK. Now, the uh, the other Champions League game happening midweek is... It's another final rematch, of course. That applies to the veterans of 2018's finale, which was uh, Real Madrid and and Liverpool, who go on Tuesday. But Wednesday, it's Paris Saint-Germain against Bayern. We'll have a quick word about that and what Paris Saint-Germain got up to this weekend with Lille next. Keep listening for Rory Smith versus Matt Davis-Adams in the Paddy Power Inter-Totally Cup. And it's live-ish. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Paris Saint-Germain against Bayern. Obviously, you're looking forward to this because it's Paris Saint-Germain against Bayern. Uh, there's no Lewandowski, disappointingly. And I believe, Tom, am I right in saying that uh, Marco Verratti won't be available either? Yeah, Verratti is out for PSG after his second positive COVID test of the season, somewhat mm. curiously. Uh, and I, I'd go as far as to say that he is probably as big a miss for PSG, if not a bigger miss, than, than Lewandowski is for Bayern. And we saw that against Lille at the weekend because they were pretty rubbish without him. As big a miss as a man with two wives, as they say. Now, uh, Paris Saint-Germain had a big game this weekend in preparation for that uh, as they took on the team who they were just edging on goal difference for the lead in Ligue 1. That's Lille. They'll beat them 1 0. Décalage écrit avec Jonathan Iconé, le centre en retrait pour David, justement, qui a le temps, qui a le temps d'ajuster et d'inscrire le premier but. Il était touché, Jonathan David, mais c'est lui. So, this is quite extraordinary. They're three points clear with seven to go. In this game, uh, Neymar also got sent off in the 90th minute. How many, how many games suspension is he going to get then? Uh, it was two yellows, so I think it'll only be one. But, but he... raising his hands, though. Yeah, well, and he's also been sent off um, uh, earlier on in the season against Marseille and the LFP's disciplinary committee does tend to take previous offending into account when it's dishing out its its ban. So it could be longer than a one-game ban. He's actually been sent off, I think, in something like three of his last 14 uh, league and games for PSG. And it was the archetypal, stroppy Neymar performance as well. Because he's been short of... Um, we short of match practice. He's been out injured since February. He played about 20 minutes against Lyon before the international break. Didn't go away during the international break uh, because uh, South American World Cup qualifiers were postponed. 
So we should have been, you know, full of running. Uh, and he just had a really poor game, uh, allowed himself to get wound up very easily. And as he often does when things are going against him, he starts over overcomplicating things, dropping deeper and deeper, demanding the ball from his teammates, trying to do everything on his own, which obviously isn't going to work. And then when it doesn't work, he gets more wound up tries to do it again um, and yeah just really lost his rag he got his first booking for for shoving his hand in the face of uh, Benjamin Andre the um, the Lille central midfielder who responded uh, in fantastic fashion by just laughing uh, in Neymar's face and then uh, got his second yellow card in stoppage time for sort of shoving uh, uh, Thiago Jello the the young Lille right back uh, off the side of the pitch and then in sort of classic like year 10 tough guy uh, style sort of went after Jalo in the tunnel but only when there were about eight minders in between them uh, so yeah uh, uh, not not a day that, that Neymar will, will look back on with any great fondness So um, Paris Saint-Germain who, who fired ruthlessly uh, Thomas Tuchel and brought in Maurizio Pochettino are they now going to basically end up with nothing this season are Lille who Rory you wrote a fabulous piece on how their top but the bottom is about to fall out of their, their world uh, are they going to actually end their dominance of Liga? Well, it depends a lot on nerve, doesn't it? And Tom, I'll, I'll bow to Tom's knowledge on on kind of the, the relative strength of the teams. You can certainly see PSG winning all of their remaining games. That's not that's not beyond the realms of possibility. Which involve, which then basically means Lille have got one minor slip up. They can afford to draw one game. And the question is for for a team that's very young that that hasn't won a title for ten years and. I suspect doesn't really didn't really expect to be in the title race uh, this far into the season. Can they hold their nerve as the pressure mounts? In that, it's one of those situations where you wonder if not having fans around might might help. But then there is this added complicating factor, which is that Monaco are only a point behind PSG and are flying. They beat Mets four 0 at the weekend. They are also a very young team. They've completely rebuilt after the. Uh, the 2017 team that got to the Champions League semi-finals. They've had a couple of rough years, um, but they, the, under Niko Kovac, young up-and-coming coach, would maybe replace Hansi Flick at Bayern, might go really well. Um, they, they suddenly look really good. So if Lille slip up and PSG slip up, you could, you could get Monaco kind of sneaking in. They, I think, the, and again, I'll bow to Tom's wisdom on it, but the really interesting thing about France is that this is brilliant for Liga, the, the lead of talents as it kind of, builds itself it is probably the most compelling title race in Europe especially after Bayern beat Leipzig at the weekend um, and inter, inter stretch the lead in Serie A Spain's pretty good but Liga is really really nicely poised um, especially does Leon aren't far back and there's only three places in the Champions League so that's in play as well but the, there is a, a sort of horizon looming at, at the end of the season when there may well be a, all the consequences of the pandemic and cancelling last season rather than trying to play it out and sort of hurriedly signing this weird TV deal with with Media Pro, which which then collapsed in the autumn. I think Canal Plus will do a deal with them probably some middle of this month, later this month, which restores the TV rights to the level it was. It was at before the pandemic, before before Lidon binned them for, for Media Pro. But the clubs are still going to have to cut their cloth accordingly. I think six or seven teams have agreed to, to pay cuts with their players. Leon have done like a stock option in, in lieu of wages. But they're all going to have to sell. And the big problem that Lille have got is that Lille's whole model under Gerard Lopez, who's now gone, was based on selling players. They they claimed in a document last year that they had a billion, a, a, their squad had a potential value of a billion euros, which is really ambitious. Um, and the problem is that they don't have anyone to sell to because all of Europe has run out of money. 
So you've got players like Bubitari Samare, uh, Jonathan Bamber, Jonathan Ikone, who are all kind of talented, everyone wants them, but no one's going to pay pre-pandemic prices for them. And that's going to be the really interesting interesting thing for all French clubs, but Lille, who are built on selling mm. in particular, how on earth do you find the money to cover these massive losses you've had to sustain for a year? And it's it's a shame it's a shame in a way but it's it's nice in a way that Lee has got this really compelling title race because what happens next over the summer and next season may not be a lot of fun for anybody right which would be strange for Lee because it's usually so much fun <laughs> anyway best, best final race in Europe this season James well, I know that's what I'm saying best of luck to Lille and of course we'll get more from Julian Laurent and his uh, noted neutral standpoint on the whole PSG in the title race uh, in Tuesday's edition of the Totally Football Show. Next up on this one, though, we're off down the bottom of the Premier League. Woo-hoo. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Down the bottom of the Premier League, where West Brom's victory at Chelsea left them eight points from safety. Fulham looked like they were getting themselves out of the bottom three. They took the lead away at Villa and then not long after found themselves losing 3-1. Crikey, they remain in third last place, three points behind Newcastle, who had that 2-2 draw with Spurs. What about Villa-Fulham Sunday afternoon Villa, who were kind of largely dormant for most of the game and then amused themselves by holding a sort of informal competition to see who could make the worst back pass. Tyron Mings winning, uh, giving the ball away to Mitrovic, who who promptly promptly put Fulham ahead. And then kind of Villa woke up. Mings as well got better, much like in you know the song. Uh, and was it Fulham retreating too much? Was it Villa? Was it what what happened? I kind of feel like Fulham's survival bit is this sort of kind of waiting for Godot style um, piece of performance art because there were three points inside the bottom three in the end of December and there were three points inside the bottom three at the end of February and they're still three points inside the bottom three now and it feels like they've kind of slightly improved the whole way without ever really, you know, they, they won twice on Merseyside which was great but they've never actually bridged that gap at all and They've also only scored 24 goals in 31 games, which is the worst apart from Sheffield United. And I don't know, okay, there's always a, a team, well, maybe there's two teams this season with Brighton and Fulham, who, who you kind of think, well, they're trying to do things in, in a good way. And, you know, you kind of feel for them, you start rooting for them. But Fulham haven't really earned that 
and yet I, I I did find myself kind of thinking, well, it'd be nice if they stayed up, but yeah, they just they've they've got some good players and players who I think would walk into most of the teams in the bottom six. You know, Luckman and Loftus Cheek and Angisa and Ariola, but they don't really seem to have be doing anything with it, despite looking good for about twenty five minutes of every single game they play in. Well, final day, of course, they will be facing Newcastle. Are you excited by the fact, just as a quick parenthesis, that this game here against Villa was the first game in Premier League history in which every single player in the starting 11s for both sides was born after the Premier League began? How could anyone who's no longer in their 20s find that <laughs> exciting, James? It's, it's nothing but depressing. I mean, the Premier League's been going on a long time, basically. That's what that tells me. Will it be continuing for Newcastle and Fulham, though? Well, as I say, the final day clash between those two teams will very probably be the decider of it. As uh, as for the Magpies, earlier on Sunday, they had a 2-2 draw with Spurs. Steve Bruce calling it their best performance of the season and suggesting they should have won. Was he right? Yeah, he was right, yeah. Um, Newcastle had 17 shots in the penalty area, which is, if it isn't the most of Steve Bruce's Premier League career, it must be pretty close because it's remarkable how badly Spurs played. They're managing to combine at the moment both sitting really deep when they should be pushing forward and yet still allowing the opposition to have a huge number of shots. And again, Jose Mourinho after the game said, he was asked by Juliet Farrington on BBC Five Live, you know, you kind of, you, you used to be pretty good at holding on to a lead. What's gone wrong? And he kind of said, well, it's the same coach, it's just different players. And it seems to be almost like he's going for this kind of ultra, almost like a Stockholm syndrome approach where he breaks down his players so much that they feel they have no choice but to go, OK, OK, we'll try it your way. We'll do everything you say. And then he thinks that will work. And maybe the easier answer is for him not to be the manager of, of Tottenham for much longer. I don't know. Yeah. Amongst other controversial things that uh, Mourinho said on Sunday was that Toby Oliveira wasn't available because of him returning late from international duty. Yeah, he he said that they they didn't make the COVID tests on time for him to be in training session on thir- on Thursday and not even on Friday. Um, but unfortunately for him, his employers tweeted out a video of Young Min's son in training um, on Friday, which has Toby in shot and playing football with his teammates. So, and Jose Mourinho there watching them. So that's pretty so. bizarre. Yeah, why would he say one. that? Well, there were questions about why he'd not picked Alvaro because David Sanchez didn't play very well when Alvaro had played both games for Belgium was clearly um, fit enough to do that and wasn't even in the squad. It's not like Jose Mourinho to say something weird to distract attention from a disappointing <laughs> result. <laughs> Spurs allowing Newcastle their highest expected goals total in a Premier League match for more than seven years here. Or did Newcastle go out and grab that themselves? It's always a little bit of both, isn't it? I think for a team that has Champions League ambitions to allow a team that's trying to avoid relegation to have chances good enough that they might have scored four goals is not its not a great recommendation for, for the, the more successful team's performance. But it, I don't know, it kind of shows that, that football's not quite as... Football's not a formula. So everything behind the scenes at Newcastle is a mess. The players, by all accounts, don't like Bruce. The fans definitely don't like Bruce. Steve Bruce himself, even at his best, is not like a, a world-leading manager. He was, he was fine about 10 years ago. You know, he's, he's obviously a vaguely competent manager now, but he's not, he's not some sort of... He, he's not Leonidas. Like he's, he's, he's not kind of a leader of men. 
everything points to Newcastle should be about to collapse. And and the big question just in terms of Fulham is can Fulham, who've won three times since November, can they find enough enough momentum basically to overtake Newcastle? That's the question. But the the but other question they, is who who is Leonidas? The leader of the Spartans. At, come oh. on, James, you're a man of... Right. Culture. Dine- James Sinku is the Brazil manager in 1958. <laughs> Could have been, or or the Belgian chocolate guy. Right. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, would have been my shout. But the, he's the dine dine heart uh, breakfast heartly for tonight. We dine in hell. That one. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah, guy. That's. Greek. Yeah. But not. But not. Um. Not necessarily a sort of spiritual forefather of Steve Bruce. No. The. Although I wonder if they might have played similar styles of football. Anyway, the. You, you don't look at the scene at Newcastle and it, it looks like this is a team just waiting to just drifting into oblivion but then they turn up and produce a really a really good performance that will give their fans hope that kind of you look at it and you think well Joe Ellington played well and there's there's you know Willett's been a good sign and he's drifted a bit the last few last few months but he's a good player there's kind of enough there that you think they might be able to get out of it and there's obviously some fight in them I'm not sure they're fighting for Bruce I suspect they're fighting for themselves and maybe ideally for Newcastle. I don't think they're doing it so they can save Steve Bruce's reputation. And it just it's just a reminder that things don't necessarily work in the A plus B equals C way that we kind of expect. Just because the players hate the manager doesn't mean teams can't perform quite well in certain games. It's not right. brilliant for long-term success, but it, it doesn't necessarily always have one unavoidable conclusion. Yeah, your, your classics is better than your algebra, Rory, but apart from that... <laughs> I'll take that. The, the difficulty for Newcastle as well is that their fixtures are really horrible. We know that they've got that big showdown against Fulham on the last day, but the mm. next six games away at Burnley, home to West Ham, they've then got Liverpool, Arsenal, Leicester and Manchester City all in a row. Wow. So I wonder how long the, uh, the positive feeling from that, that late Joe Willett goal will last uh, on Tyneside. Fulham's fixtures are horrible as well, and they just seem to be, when, that, when they walked off the pitch at Villa today... It looked like heads were down for the first time, I think. And Parker in the last kind of five minutes was just sort of shouting, but kind of forlorn. Alexander Mitrovic, by the way, played the last kind of three minutes just walking around the centre circle. He just, having scored, I think he thought that he'd finally got himself back into everyone's good books and was going to fire full and forward and then just look thoroughly sick as they conceded goals. I just think they might not have enough. Crikey. Well, it's going to be fascinating seeing this one play out. Also, over the weekend, Saturday afternoon, Leeds had a 2-1 win over Sheffield United in that Yorkshire derby. Uh, and then Sunday, it was Southampton 3, Burnley 2. As uh, Ralph Hosenhutl put it afterwards, five goals is all very good for television, but not so much for the hearts of the managers. That's only Saints' second win in their last 13 Premier League matches. Wow. And uh, it coincided with the return of Danny Ings, of course, perhaps not coincidentally. Any thoughts on those two games before I mention the two ones on Monday and we get on to the quiz? Uh, well, Southampton-Burnley was a fantastic game um, in that Burnley sort of caught Southampton cold, won a penalty and then an absolutely classic Burnley goal. Big Ben me hoof, Chris Wood flick on uh, and then Vidra sort of spears it past Fraser Forster. And, and Southampton are on this you know, concerning run of results. Uh, I mean, they, yeah, their, their recent form has been really patchy and you sort of wondered what kind of reaction you'd get. But yeah, then Danny Ings sort of came to the fore, a goal 
and then assist, uh, and then Nathan Redmond uh, volleys in the winner, and they were they were good value for the win in the end. Um, but yeah, they're in a bit of a weird sort of nether region, Southampton, and I don't think as bad as their form has been, they've never looked like they were in danger of sliding into the relegation picture. So it's just a case of sort of trying to find some kind of you know, some kind of ump from somewhere for, for the last few weeks of the season. Um, and yeah, the reaction that they got, um, albeit Ralph Hasenhutl won't want them giving away two goal head starts to all their opponents. I mean, that does suggest that, you know, that they might have, they might have a bit of momentum behind them going into, uh, going into the running. The, the weird nether region that, that Tom talked about is just mid table, isn't it? Like the, we've, we've had a really kind of, that wasn't meant to sound dismissive, but like we've had a really strange season that it's been so concertina not necessarily at the top, but from sort of second down to eighth or ninth. And then there's been, a, a, as there always is, like a squabble of teams below like 15th who are fighting against relegation. And the, the, the difference, I guess, is now you look at the table and you see a gap between Leeds and Palace in 11th and 12th, I think. And that's now the bottom eight. And Southampton, are just, Southampton and Palace are just kind of adrift there. They, Southampton's got 36 points. They're going to stay up. They are in, in full-on Pardew at Charlton territory. Nice Palace, of course, get a chance to improve their lot when they visit Everton, who have a rotten record at home. Uh, that's Monday, as is Wolves clash with West Ham. Hmm. Right, well, having wrapped up, or at least touched on most of the big stories from the uh, Premier League weekend, next up, listener, it's time to do the quiz. Listener, stop what you're doing and sign up for a subscription with The Athletic. For unrivaled coverage on the business end of the season, you get all the articles, all the podcasts, and free, and Q&As with writers. It's all for just £4 a month. You can get this uh, wonderful deal by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Uh, Tuesday is very much when our podcasts come out this week. Uh, totally Scottish Football Show out that day. Offside Rule WSL Edition out on Tuesday as well. Totally Football Show European Edition on a Tuesday. And the Totally Football League Show out on Tuesday this week, and hosted by Matt Davis-Adams. Speaking of which, time now for today's Inter-Totally Cup. The Inter-Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. TCC Supply, 18-plus, Yes, now already through to the quarterfinals. Reigning champion Michael Cox, who was a narrow winner against uh, Tom Williams here. A Sasha Gurionov, who put out Daniel. And Duncan Alexander, who beat Adrian Clark on Thursday and will now be facing a Sash in the quarterfinals. Who's up next? Let's meet the contestants. Up first... He's a commentator, a host, a pundit, and crucially for his plans to stay in this tournament, he's not picking his own specialist subject. Uh, I have gone for Premier League squad numbers. So at the end of that round, Matt, you have scored one point out of five. Oh my word, it's Matt Davis Adams. War there with Why Can't We Be Friends, and it gives us a chance to salute their, their wonderful bass player, B.B. Dickerson, who passed away sadly on Sunday and Matt Davis Adams hello to you welcome back thanks James I was going to say glad to be here but that would be a half truth I see Uh, you're no doubt plagued by memories of your early exit in last year's competition to the eventual champion Michael Cox of course if you win this you'll be facing him again 
Yeah, I mean, great. <laughs> I've said what I what I wanted to say about the draw and, and the fact that it hasn't really favoured me. You know, I'm not going to say anything about the scheduling of this particular fixture, but looking forward to the quiz. Yeah, you okay. Know, who knows? Maybe I can pull off an upset. Perhaps so, Matt. As you no doubt know, this year winners will earn ten pounds for the charity of their choice, courtesy of Paddy Power. The Paddy Power will then place said ten pounds on the bet of your choosing, with any winnings from that going to your charity. What's your charity, Matt? Uh, my charity is Pecan, and they are a food bank who help people in the London Borough of Southwark. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. OK, well, you're ready for the quiz, but who are you going to be up against? Let's find out. And his opponent, he is a two-time winner of the FSF Football Writer of the Year, but a no-time participant in the Intertotally Cup. Representing the not-so-failing New York Times and the north of England, he is Rory Smith. Kokomo. Why had no one thought of that before? Because it's the only song that's about CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. It's just a list of of fixtures. (laughs) Nice. Um, You're debuting in the competition, as we just heard from uh, producer Ben there. And are you excited? I'm I'm quite nervous. I, I can't really remember why I agreed to this because it strikes me I'm on that I'm on a hide into nothing. To be perfectly honest, um, so I, I I don't quite know why Matt thinks he's about to pull off an upset. Right. Uh, both of our contestants very very keen and eager to be in the Intertotally Cup this year, <laughs> and why wouldn't they be? And of course, with ringside seats full, the spectacle ahead are Daniel and Tom. How are you boys feeling? A sort of tableau of losers, just <laughs> just just watching on, beckoning one of these two gladiators to join us in the, the pit of despair. But yeah, no, actually not, not, not having to quiz myself. I'm feeling, um, feeling quite relaxed, looking forward to the spectacle. All right. Sky have Super Sunday. We have Tableau of Losers, totally Tableau of <laughs> Losers. Uh, Rory, who is your charity of choice going to be? Uh, it is the Brain Tumor Charity. Ah. I do research into, into brain tumors. Excellent. All right, then. If you are both ready, Rory and Matt, let's get our quiz on. Matt, you're up first. Here's question one. Ajax signed Sebastian Allaire from West Ham this season, but why was he unable to appear for Ajax in the Europa League? Uh, because they forgot to register him for their Europa League squad. That's true. One point. Question two. Chris Waddle's most famous musical partner was Glenn Hoddle, but with which player did he duet on the song We've Got a Feeling in 1991? Paul Gascoigne? I'm afraid not, no. Do you know, Rory? Is it Jean-Pierre Papin? It is not Jean-Pierre Papin. What about our chorus of losers over there? Do they know? Is it Basil Bolly? It is! I was going to say Tom. Basil Bolly, yeah. Yeah, you were, weren't you? Right, OK. Can we, so- can we retrospectively add that to my total from round <laughs> course, one and, and get Coxie back for uh, an extra time shootout? Now, question three. Erling Haaland is one son of a former Premier League player in the current Borussia Dortmund team. Who's the other? Gio Reyna. Very good. Two points for Matt. Question four. Which player had to be substituted in the 2014 World Cup final having suffered a concussion and subsequently had no memory of the game? I think I'm not sure. Uh, oh, I think, hey, I really don't to be know. in the World Cup final and have no memory of it whatsoever. Yeah, awful. Poor. Poor person, whoever they mm. were. That Ironic that you have no memory of this either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, oh, 
Okay, hang on a second and I'll say a name. I'm going to say Thomas Muller. It's not Thomas Muller. Rory, do you know? Christoph Kramer. Bingo. Anyway, so on to question five. Matt, in addition to West Ham, who was the other club that had more than one representative in England's World Cup winning team in 1966? Manchester United. Is correct. A very creditable three points out of five, Matt. What do you think? Uh, I think that's par. It's probably not going to be enough to take me through, but it's, it's certainly an improvement on last year. All right. Well, let's... It's a new world record for how many times we can all put ourselves down <laughs> in a 15-minute period. Rory, are you ready for your questions? Just about. With a score of three to beat. Question one. Which French club's training ground was invaded in January by disgruntled supporters who smashed windows and stole the manager's briefcase? Marseille. Is correct. Question two. Which player reached number 31 in the charts with a song called Head Over Heels in Love? I mean, strictly speaking, deep down, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I'm going to guess that it's Klaus Fischer. That's an interesting guess, but no, it's not. Matt, do you know this one? Is it Kevin Keegan? It was Kevin Keegan. <sighs> Correct, Amundo. Question three. Erling Haaland scored a large number of goals in an under-20s World Cup game against Honduras in 2019. How many goals did he score, Rory, in that game? It's either 11 or 13. I'm going to... Mm, I'm going to go for 11. Matt? Mm, I thought it was nine. It is nine. Oh, no, you don't. Yeah. Yep. Question four, then. You need this, Rory. I do. Who scored Brazil's goal in the 7-1 defeat to Germany at the 2014 World Cup? Oscar. Is correct. So get this next one right and we'll be on to a tiebreaker. Nobody wants that. Question five. Name one of the two players who scored for West Germany in the 1966 World Cup final. Name one of them. Ooh. Uwe Seeler. I'm afraid not. Oh. A, that was a fiendish question, Rory, I have mm. to say. Fiendish. Matt, do you have anything for this? Nope, don't need to. <laughs> and that's fair well listeners you're no doubt pointing out Helmut Haller and Wolfgang mm. Weber would uh, oh, no. both have been enough to give Rory the point he needed to force a tie break but as it is Rory your appearance has been so very brief in this competition yeah. but it's been I mean, delightful I think I've really graced it that, I'm going to take uh, solace in the fact that I, I'm not ashamed that I don't know about Kevin Keegan's musical career All right, that's, but my, go that's my solace Go home and check that one out because uh, you'll enjoy it. The, the video appearance is particularly special. As for you, Matt, you have got yourself a chance for revenge against Michael Cox. Yeah, I'm not thinking about that at the moment, to be honest, James. I just want to just want to enjoy this one for right. a little while, given what happened last year, given the quality of opponent. You know, as alluded to the, the fixture scheduling, maybe not ideally in my favour. Just gonna just gonna enjoy this big big night. Excellent. I've got I've got a problem with Matt now, where when he says anything that sounds like a post-match interview, it sounds like Steve Bruce's voice. Did you get the same, James? Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. We need a Matt Davis, Adam, Steve Bruce soundboard uh, for moments like this. Anyway, you also earn ten pounds for your charity 
and the proceeds of your charity bet. Uh, Matt, congratulations. Look forward to uh, hearing how you get on against Coxie in the quarterfinals. But that wraps it up for this edition of the Intertotally Cup. Bingo. And also, that brings us to the end of today's show. Tom, Rory and Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. And, uh, of course, Tuesday we'll see us back with the Euro Boys rounding up all the Continental's latest happenings. The regular show returns on Thursday, reviewing all the Champions League clashes. So do make sure you join us for those. Have a lovely week in the meantime. And from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.